So as Greg uh, prayed, I uh, encourage you to grab your Bibles once again, open up to the book of Joshua, chapter 5, as we uh, continue looking at how we can build a battle-tested, ready faith. Joshua, chapter 5. Last Sunday, uh, we, we began looking at the initial entrance into the promised land, and that uh, entire section actually goes from chapter 3, verse 1 to, to chapter 5, verse 12, and, and has three main points of emphasis throughout it. And we covered the, the two of them, the first two last week. Uh, the first one was the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence uh, of God going before them, the presence of God leading and directing them in all that they did. And um, uh, for us today, of course, the application is to make sure we understand and, and allow God to go before us in all of our activities rather than you know, making our own plans, doing our own thing and going our own way and then pausing somewhere along the line and say, oh yeah, by, by the way, God bless me in what I'm doing, um, rather seeking God's direction in each and everything. But it also reminded us that we can't lag behind what God is doing. Imagine the person who's standing on the eastern side of the Jordan River and they see God's miraculous uh, means of drying the river so that they can walk across and they walk across, but it would be kind of scary with that huge wall of water there and wondering what's happening. And if they hesitated or waited in fear, there comes a point in time when that ark was going to come up out of the river and it would be too late. The waters would come back uh, down. So... Um, we must be willing to follow God without lagging behind, even if the way uh, might look scary or treacherous to us. The second point of emphasis was the, the memorial uh, pillar of stones that was taken from the dry riverbed in the middle there. And these stones acted as a reminder uh, to the children of Israel of the great and mighty way that God had acted to bring them into the land. And every time they saw it, every time they would walk by and look at it, it would give them encouragement for the future, uh, assurance for all the trials and hardships they were yet to face. And, And the reality is we as humans have an incredible capacity to forget. And we forget even the big things God does, let alone all those little ways that He is faithful and acts in our life to to show us His love and His His mercy and grace. So we need to make things uh, that act as those reminders, make sure that we don't forget what God has done for us. I actually uh, heard about someone that started a a stone pillar of remembrance in their house. only instead of using great big rocks, they use those little tiny smooth river rocks that you can use for like landscaping and stuff. And then they got one of those glass column, like you put around a candle or something like that. And, and she, what she did was she would take these rocks and then she would write uh, a, with a black magic marker uh, a single or maybe two words on that or a symbol or even just a little picture of some type. And then she would put those in that glass jar and let it fill up. And every time something new happened, they say, whoa, that was God working our life. They would add another rock. And, and so then every now and then she would dump those out on, on her. She kept it on the coffee table in the living room and just remind herself of the things that God had done. And when people would come over and say, what's this? Wow, she had a great opportunity to share uh, about God in her life. And so great idea. I wish I had a thought of that, but I didn't. But uh, um, Now you can steal it if you want. Um, Moving on. That brings us to our our third 
a point of emphasis that we want to focus on today. And that story is found primarily in uh, uh, chapter 5, but we'll have to go back and review a couple things that happen in, in chapters 3 and 4 to help set the stage. But in order for us to get really the full impact of what's happening in these uh, 12 verses in chapter 5, we, we need to do a bit of, of a history lesson first. And I hope that everyone here loves history as much as I do. But if you don't, tough, you're going to get it anyways. Um, so, approximately 700 years before this crossing of the Jordan took place, God came to a guy named Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham, and he told him to get up and to leave his family and his, his, everything he knew, the place, to a land that God was going to show him. Didn't even tell him what the place was. Just said, you head out and I'll show you this place. And he obeyed and did that. Uh, and, and as he did that, God made some promises to him that you can find in Genesis chapter 12. It says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And once Abraham had actually made it to the land, God then reiterated those promises, expanding on one particular part of those promises. In Genesis chapter 17, 8, he said, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings. Sojourning is a fancy word for camping out. This is where he had been camping uh, around the land there. And, and all the land of Canaan, it says, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Canaan, of course, is one and the same, another name for the promised land. And as a visible, tangible sign of that covenant promise that God was going to make and that he was going to keep that and these people belonged to him, uh, Abraham was commanded to be circumcised. Uh, Genesis 17 says, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. But it wasn't just Abraham that would happen, uh, that, that this would happen to. I mean, the passage goes on to say, And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generation. So this was going to be passed on, on and on and on it would go. This was the sign the distinguishing mark of belonging to God. And, and if you're unsure what circumcision is, well, you can ask your parents later. For right now, we're going to fast forward uh, a few generations. Abraham uh, and, and uh, the descendants, they're camped out, uh, you know, they're in the Canaan land, but they never actually possessed the land. It wasn't theirs. They didn't own it. They were just there as pilgrims wandering in it. And, and down the road, Abraham has a great-grandson named Joseph. Joseph was uh, not particularly well-liked by his brothers, who ended up taking an opportunity to get rid of him by selling him uh, to a band of, of Midianite traders. And then they went back and lied to their dad, saying that he'd been killed by this wild beast. And the Midianites took him down to Egypt, sold him as a slave there. And long story short, through God's miraculous working and Joseph's faithfulness, he ended up rising from a lowly slave to the second most powerful man in all of Egypt behind only Pharaoh himself. And God had shown that there was going to be seven years of great abundance in harvests and then seven years of severe famine. And so through Joseph's wise leadership, Egypt had all the food they needed during that terrible time of famine. 
But meanwhile, somewhere in the middle of, of that famine, all of Joseph's brothers and sisters and their families back in Canaan are starving because they don't have any food. And they hear there's food down in Egypt, so they decide to go down there and get grain. And that leads to an unexpected but ultimately happy family reunion and and the entire clan, all his brothers, sisters, all their family, all their relatives end up moving down from Canaan to Egypt so they can be next to Joseph, near Joseph, and near, of course, where all the food is. And it was a great way to save the family from that famine. But the bad news is, once the famine was over, they didn't move back to Canaan. They continued to hang around in Egypt. And as time went on, their numbers as a clan increased and grew mightily. God uh, allowed them to be fruitful and multiply beyond capacity. And down the road, another pharaoh who didn't know Joseph anymore decided, whoa, I don't like all these foreigners in my land. I'm going to make them slaves. And all of a sudden, these people were put into bondage as slaves, and they spent the next 400 years enslaved to Egypt. And uh, after being slaves, they decided that uh, they'd rather move back to the land of Canaan. And uh, they began crying out to God for deliverance. Well, at just the right time, God heard their cries and he responded to them and sent them Charlton Heston, uh, <laughs> sent them Moses. Moses led them out of bondage. Uh, God convinced Pharaoh that he should let them go through severe plagues, and it was the final plague that finally turned Pharaoh's heart. God sent the angel of death to kill every firstborn child of every single household, but he gave the Jewish people a way of escape by sacrificing a lamb and placing some of the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their house. And that way, when the angel of death came, he saw the blood of the lamb, he would pass over that house, not bringing uh, death there. And that night then was the beginning of the Passover feast, which celebrated uh, God's deliverance in that uh, event. And it was supposed to be celebrated every single year, as it says in Exodus twelve fourteen. Now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. And so Moses led them out after Pharaoh then released them after that and, and uh, he led them to Mount Sinai where they received the Ten Commandments and all of the other laws and instructions that God gave them for worship and for building the tabernacle and all that stuff that we looked at. And, and once that was completed, then they headed to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And when they got there, Moses sent 12 guys in to spy out the land of Canaan and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, were men of faith who came back saying, man, this place is awesome. This is, we can hardly wait to get in there. God's going to give us the land. It's going to be so wonderful living there. But the other 10 guys were spiritual wimps who had forgotten God's promises and God's mighty deeds already and who said, oh, there is no possible way we can do that. These warriors here are giants. They're going to squash us like a bug. We're all going to die. And the multitude of people listened to those 10 guys. The entire congregation started moaning and complaining. And in fact, it says that it says they all, all began saying, oh, it would have been better off for us to just die in the wilderness. 
And finally they said, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not have been better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Can you believe that? I mean, first they said, well, it would be better for us just to die in the wilderness. Well, maybe we don't, let's just go back to be slaves. As you can imagine, this didn't go over very well with God, who had promised them to bring them into the land safely. And as a result, God judged their unbelief. Listen to what he said, uh, uh, starting in Numbers uh, 14, 28. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. That might... uh, that was the beginning of, of, of the 40 years of wandering in the world. This might seem like kind of a harsh judgment by God, but he was merely giving them what they said they wanted. They were afraid to trust him and to enter into the promised land, said it would be better off for them to die in the wilderness, so die in the wilderness they did. And now, as we come up to Joshua and what we've been looking at, those children of that unbelieving, grumbling generation, this whole new generation, as we saw last week, they had just crossed over into the promised land. They were moving forward by faith in God. And look at how chapter 5 then begins. Now it came about, Okay, this is right after the crossing over of the Jordan. Now it came about when the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Now, how is it that the kings heard about this? Because like I said, Jericho was four miles away and not visible uh, to the Jordan River uh, from that point. And the other kings were, were many miles farther, clear down by the Mediterranean Sea. How did they hear about it? Well, you know, they heard about it the way anybody else hears, right? Somebody saw and came and reported it. And so my, my educated guess is that the king of Jericho had posted patrols and sentries in the hill, right? I mean, they knew that the, the, the children of Israel had been camped, you know, a few miles past the Jordan and, and a few miles farther north. They knew that they were close by, and they knew that a couple of spies had been sent into Jericho. We looked at that a, a few weeks ago. So any military man worth his salt at all was going to want sentries and guards out, have eyes and ears about so they could see and know what was happening because they knew that this threat was there, that an attack might happen soon but they were at least fairly sure that it wasn't going to happen real soon because they had a natural defense the the jordan river was very very tough to cross 
When, when we went to Israel a couple of years ago, by the time you got that far south in Israel down to where Jericho is, the Jordan River was so small that I, I believe I could have literally jumped across it without getting my shoes wet if I'd have walked up and down a little while, a little space to find the right spot. I mean, uh, it, it's just tiny. Uh, back in the 1920s, they built a dam on the end of Galilee to regulate the flow, so that decreased it some. But uh, more than that, it's all the water that is taken out for the irrigation and the city needs that have been grown up and built there, so that by the time it gets down there, it's literally probably less than a fourth of the size of Fall River. So, so you're not thinking that this is any big problem to get across. But prior to all of that, the Jordan was, was a huge river. Uh, the, the normal flow, as you can see from the riverbed uh, 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 sides and, and from, of course, back prior to the 1920s when the dam was built, uh, the, the, the stream was about 90 to 100 feet wide. And it was in most spots, 10 to 12 feet deep. That's a tough river to get across when you're trying to bring all your, you know, one guy swimming across, yeah, you might be able to do it, but when you're bringing your entire goods and household and everything you need to live with and your kids and all, all that, that's, that's pretty formidable. But uh, there was another reason why the Amorites weren't expecting an attack yet. It's a little uh, uh, parenthetical note we get back in, chapter 15 or chapter 3 of verse 15 it says this for the jordan overflows all its banks in the days of the harvest and and it was harvest time so because it was harvest time the river was in flood stage well you can see the floodplain of the jordan river the floodplain is anywhere from 200 yards to one mile wide and that floodplain is full of scrub brush that is anywhere from two feet tall to five feet tall. So now all this brush uh, would have been hidden under this raging water going across, and it would make any type of crossing other than at some very narrow fjords that were, fjords that were marked out uh, all but impossible. And so the Amorites, they felt fairly secure at least for a little time because the Jordan River was protecting them. But then, then they heard about the crossing. Can you imagine the guard who was out on patrol and then all of a sudden saw this invisible dam and the water's piling up and dry land underneath and this horde of people crossing over into the land? He hightailed it back to Jericho to tell his tale and as he did, whatever shred of courage was in the people completely melted away. So obviously, obviously, this would be the perfect time to strike, right? They come in to take over the land. This would be the perfect time to send the military to get them while they're all still shaking in their sandals and, and, and before they have any chance to fortify their defensive position, right? But, no, God had a completely different plan. Here's what he commanded Joshua. Make for yourselves flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel for the second time. 
Now, a second time doesn't mean a second time per person. It, it means starting up the ritual again for the second time. You see, during the period of rebellion and grumbling and, and judgment of that 40 years in the wilderness, the people had either neglected or just outright rejected God's command to circumcise their male children. Uh, that's what verse 5 tells us. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. So God said, circumcise them. But the timing couldn't have been worse, right? So when God gives this command to Joshua, you can almost hear him saying, or, or going, Say say what? Now? We're, we're doing this? And you can definitely hear all the fighting men going, take a sharp knife and do what? Uh, I mean, some of these guys would have been 40 years old. And circumcision would have not only delayed their ability to attack, but it would actually have completely incapacitated the men for several days, meaning that they were now vulnerable to an attack from the Amorites if they came down. So from a human perspective, it just didn't make any sense at all. They, they should be striking while the iron is hot rather than giving the enemy a, a chance to get them while they're laid up or, or giving them any extra time to fortify their defenses. And we're not exactly sure how long that healing process took. Uh, verse 8 says, Now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their place in the camp until they were healed. Uh, I mean, that's it. You're laying around until you're healed for quite this time. But it, but it did give them, that time did give them uh, during that healing time, the people to do something else that, as far as we can tell, was also neglected during the 40 years of wandering. Look at verse 10. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. This feast, which was started when they were still slaves back in Egypt, was now, for the very first time, being celebrated in the land that God had promised. It was a reminder to them that God does what he says he's going to do. So, what was God doing through these things? What, what, what was he trying to teach them and what's he teaching us through it? And I, and I think we would begin to understand what, uh, what God's, uh, as we begin to understand what God's doing, then the application for us becomes you know, pretty, pretty clear. And the first part of answering what he was doing is, is really looking at how he did it. So let me, let me ask you a question. Have you ever noticed in your own life how often God's timing really seems to stink? I mean, I mean, sometimes His timing is absolutely horrible. Now, before you pick up rocks to stone me, let, let me uh, explain what I mean. Think of this from the position of the Israelite. Let's go back to the beginning of this crossing over story in, in chapter 3. And word comes down to Joshua, and Joshua spreads it around to the people that in three days, we're going to, you get ready because we're going over to the promised land. Now, can't you imagine those hundreds of thousands of fighting men and all the, all the entire hordes, over a million people, taking a look 
at the flooding river and saying, really, God? Like, like right now you want us to cross the river? This is like the worst possible time. Let's just wait a few more months until after the hot, dry season and the, and the river will be at its lowest point then. But no, God picks to do it right in the middle of the flood stage when it is seemingly impossible to do. And, and then, when he miraculously does get them across, instead of taking advantage of their strategic upper hand to attack the enemy when they're all discombobulated and, and, and haven't got their defenses ready, he tells the men to all get circumcised. And again, you can say, hey, couldn't we have done this a few weeks ago when we were camped out on the other side not doing anything? Right now, you want us to do that? This is horrible timing, God. And of course, from our human perspective, it is horrible timing for both of those events. But from God's perspective, it was perfect. God had a point that He wanted to make sure that they got, that it's about them, not about them, but about Him. It's not their power and ability, but His power and ability. The rivers at flood stage, no problem. I'll just stick my hand here, make a dam. You guys can walk across easy as pie. Now even your little kids can handle this. Go on across. Or you think it's time, perfect time to attack the enemy? Nope. I've got something else in mind for you. You need to do this first. And yes, it's going to take away your strategic advantage and it, in fact, will make you vulnerable. But don't worry. I'm the one who's taking care of you and taking care of those things. God wanted them to know that this was all His doing, not theirs. So He does things that might look like horrible timing to remind them that it's all about Him. So, does God have any horrible timing things going on in your life? Chances are most of us can look back to some incident, but maybe some are going through it right now. I'd say, if that's your case, be encouraged. Look up. God's got something good in mind to remind you that He is God and He knows what He is doing. And there's a second lesson I think we can learn from this incident. You know, circumcision was the mark of belonging. It identified you as a part of God's chosen people, very similar to the way baptism works today. And the Passover feast was, was a, a meal of remembrance to commemorate what God had done on their behalf. Again, very similar to communion. These two physical actions were deeply spiritual exercises. In doing them, they were getting their hearts right with God. And it is much more important to God that He have your heart than He have your sword. I have no doubt that all those warriors were ready to strap on the sword and head right up and take the land. But God says, no, I, I got a heart issue I wanted to deal with. Are you mine? Are you 100% committed to me? 
circumstances would show that. It was a test of the heart and loyalty. Passover was an expression of gratitude and trust. And as the children of Israel were submitted to those things, they were saying, okay, God, it's not us. It's you. And I trust you. I trust you to take care of me in my weakness. And I trust you to know what you're doing because I can't see it. It doesn't make sense to me, but God, I'm following you and trusting you. That's what submitting to those two things would mean. And God, he wants to build that same trusting relationship in us. So the reality is, he may lead you to a path that really doesn't look right in your human estimation. He may lead you to the edge of the river that's in flood stage and say, hey, get ready, we're going across. And you may think, God, what are you doing to me? But if you choose to trust God in those situations, you will find that not only does your faith grow strong, but you also find out, well, his timing was actually pretty good after all. It's exactly what I needed. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for, for your word, for these great examples from the Old Testament that, that remind us of who you are, a great and awesome God who has promised to work on behalf of your children. And so God, help us to strengthen our faith. Help us to choose to trust you even when the way doesn't seem right from a human perspective. God, we know that you know that you are doing what is best. So we submit ourselves to that. And we pray this in Jesus' name.